You're listening to the Polygon Podcast. In this episode, photographer Mark Riddell is in conversation with art historian John O'Brien. Be sure to click subscribe and enjoy. Hello, Mark. Hi, John. <laughs> Good to see you again. Good to hear you again. It's been, it's been a, while. a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've known each other for about 15 years. Uh, but I've known your work for much longer. Uh, and in recent years, I've even sometimes written about it. That's true. Which has been a, pl- which has been a pleasure and also a challenge. I think we need to acknowledge at the outset um, of the conversation mm-hmm. that, we're, that it's taking place in a time of COVID and in a time of protest. Black Lives Matter. Uh, <clears throat> and I think we need to point out that we're speaking from different locations. Um, I'm in the Southern Gulf Islands, not far from Vancouver, and you're in Long Beach, California. And the last time I spoke to you, which was June 2nd, or had an email exchange with you on June 2nd, you were under curfew. Yes, yes. Uh, that's, of course, over. <laughs> Uh, we had some uh, excitement here. Uh, the uh, large protests uh, turned violent uh, in Long Beach, and there was a lot of looting and uh, et cetera. Uh, it was a, and so we had several days of curfew. So did the city of Los Angeles and, and other municipalities in the area. Uh, strangely, the the center of the looting itself and uh, was my old neighborhood. I, I if I hadn't moved, I could have watched the whole thing from my balcony. The, uh, so, um, you know, so, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been living where I am now, uh, where I'm sitting uh, for about four years. Uh, uh, also, in terms of timing, uh, I retired from teaching almost exactly one year ago, which means I did not have to learn how to teach online. <laughs> 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 which I can't even imagine. I was teaching analog photography classes. How would one have a virtual chemical darkroom? <laughs> so, so I, yeah, yeah. And I was, I also, uh, I built a, a darkroom in my garage last summer in preparation for leaving the, the nest of the university. So, um, so actually the, you know, the stay at home order hasn't been too bad for me. <laughs> So, my so have, you, have you, you must have, you probably haven't been out much. You probably haven't been into the desert recently, uh, this yeah. March. Uh, so, this past Saturday, my wife and I did a day trip to the desert. <laughs> so it was the first time I've been out of town, you know, uh, since early March. And, uh, and it wasn't even a photography trip. It was just, it was actually a trip. For her to get rocks for the garden and for the dogs to run off leash, <laughs> but I did take a camera. <laughs> yes. Have you been spending most of your time? In the, have you been spending most of your time in the dark room then? I have, and my studio. I'm doing, you know, trying to both do new work and uh, I'm working on my archive uh, as well. So uh, my archive is going to uh, Stanford University. So uh, that congratulations. Was, uh, Thank you. That was announced. That is great. That's great. Yeah. No. It's 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 a. I mean, it's 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 an honor, but also a huge relief. <laughs> you know, um, 
uh, it was announced uh, just over a year ago publicly, but I've sort of been working on it for a couple of years. Uh, it involves uh, uh, some donors that are assisting with all this. Uh, and um, uh, a year ago, Stanford, Stanford Library Special Collections uh, established a curator of photo photographic archives. So, uh, so I've been working with him. That, so. That's not that's not so usual, is it? Uh, no, it's not. But they're making. I mean, Stanford has a huge uh, number of really important archives. Uh, you know, no names like Buckminster Fuller and Carolee Sheeman and other people you've probably never heard of. Uh, and uh, uh, but they're making a push to get involved in in photographic archives in particular now. And and of course they have historical photography archive. I mean, they have of course the Moybridge stuff because that's where where he started his career and uh, they have a large amount of Watkins and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, but this, uh, I'm one of the first living photographers that they're getting involved with. Uh, that's so. a good fit. If they've got Watkins and Moybridge, um, that's a terrific fit for you. you know, uh, the, the last time I visited there, the, the librarian, the, the checkout librarian, I guess, well, you don't check that stuff out, but anyway, the, the, the guy behind the desk, uh, said, oh, I got something cool to show you. And it was the original annotated manuscript for Hal by Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> so, so that's the company I'm in, you know? So it's, it's really cool. Uh, it means uh, when I, I mean, there's not a lot of call for like things like print sales and shows right now. <laughs> so when I go into the dark room, you know, I, I, I don't have any pressure. So I'm, I'm working on both, you know, resolving some unfinished older things and also uh, working on, on new projects uh, that have been this, this kind of new epic I've been working on for about four years now. So, Is uh, it your plan to send everything there? Well, it, my wife would love that. <laughs> it's like, get rid of you know, the books. Everything. <laughs> you know? um, at this point, I mean, when, when this became when this project began, uh, I made a kind of list of all large and small projects I could think of from graduate school forward. And then the, 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 there's an attempt to kind of determine, for me to decide like how each one of those items would be represented in whole or so on in part. Um, uh, so at this point, uh, I mean, there's a lot of archival material that I'm not willing to give up yet, especially my notebooks and, and negatives and stuff. but. In fact, because of the uh, the way this gift is working, uh, those things turn out to not have any monetary value while you're alive. <laughs> so negatives are nothing until you die. Then they're really, really valuable. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's it's you know, and I've had lots of thoughts about the negatives because you know I, I don't really like the idea of giving. Of, I, I'd rather destroy nine tenths of them and just give them representative things. Um, so I don't know, that's, a, you know, uh, I think it was, uh, it was uh, Charlotte Mormon. I read this a couple of years ago and maybe an art forum Her uh, she collected everything for the downtown New York scene, like forever, you know, she had everything. And her dying word, her last words to her partner was don't throw anything away. <laughs> so that's in the back of my mind. <laughs> Well, and my wife feels the same way as your wife about my archives. And mine, I haven't signed on the dotted line yet, but we are working on it. And I think it's definitely going to come to 
to happen, but my, all my stuff, my archives and a lot of other material will go to the National Gallery of Canada. That's perfect. And it's, it's a huge amount of material because um, sure. I've kept everything over the years, uh -huh. including photographs that I have of yours and small books of yours and oh, yeah. you know, correspondence and papers. Um, so that'll be another place where a tiny piece of you will be. I know there's already a piece of you there already. Well, in fact, the National Gallery has one of the largest collections of Rudels of any museum. You know, um, they're probably one of the top three for, in that regard. Uh, Anne Thomas is. I met her when I was in. I started showing Anne work when I was 1980 when I was a grad student or 81 maybe I don't know. And uh, and she's been a huge supporter. You know, uh, she. Um, so that's good. So you're. You know. So they have. You know that stuff will will make sense there. You know. I think I hope so, and I'm gonna. I will hold back the atomic material. Okay. Um, because okay. I'm still working with it, just the way you're holding back material. Right. But some of the projects, or most of the projects, practically all the projects that are finished, and I'm unlikely to return to, will go there later this year. Oh, that's terrific! Yeah. Um, see, I have my, my problem is um, I have trouble walking away from projects let's say <laughs> so you know so I, i'm hesitant to give everything up on certain things you know and um so a, a lot of the stuff that's already gone to stanford i'll be adding to those particular piles in fact i had a long zoom conversation with the curator a few weeks ago about uh this excel sheet he's producing that with all the all the categories and what would be in each one and so on and so forth so and I figured, you know, that's their problem more than mine, but, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. uh, but I mean, I think this, and this brings us to a question about photography that I think you're, you're somewhat interested in um, as well is that I, I've made a lot of pictures that have never been shown or published either because a, I didn't have the opportunity, or B, I didn't think they were worthy of public scrutiny as, as you know, in terms of, you know, my, life as an artist, but nonetheless, being that they're photographs that contain information that I can't predict would be of, you know, of use to somebody in the future, you know, because regardless, of your, regardless of your intentions, you know, photographs grow up to be documents, you know? Well, could, could they be part of a study collection and not to be yeah, found? Sure, yeah, I, I, and, I, and you know, I have an estate lawyer uh, who specializes in with photographers and uh, he, he wants to, you know, draw up these things about how, how things can be used when I'm gone, once I'm gone, you know? Um, so, uh, so there's that. So I, I've been careful to include a lot of exhibition prints, but also a lot of good prints. I mean, I don't make, if I make bad prints just to see it, I don't keep them, you know. Um, so this, I'm not. They're not get. They're not getting junk, but they're getting different levels of quality. But you know, maybe I photograph. You know, one small example because it's atomic. I photographed the six uh, western sites of the uh, so-called Plowshares Project. The you know quote peaceful atom unquote. Um, and when I use that work. Uh, as a, as a kind of part of a larger project on, on nuclear landscapes, I selected one picture for to represent each site, but of course I made more. And so the archive will have, you know, the additional ones that I printed and then uh, uh, in addition to the sixth exhibition prints. So and it's just a small example, you know. What about the small books? 
the you've books. You've got about 100. How many I, of them will go? Well, when I first started doing them, they were unique. I only made one. And uh, what happened was, uh, it's kind of funny. I was making them for my, you know, just my own amusement. and play. I, I make a lot of work just because I enjoy making it I mean, with no audience in mind or no other purpose than to, to do it and see it. And, uh, and that's sort of how the books were. I started making, I made a few in, in Montreal before I moved to California, which I think was 2002. Um, and uh, I had a visitor uh, in, this, in my studio here from uh, uh, Annie Leiden, who was a curator to Getty at the time. Uh, and by chance, I, it wasn't why she was there, but she saw some of the books and she says, oh, we have to show these to Weston Naif, who was at the time the chief curator. And uh, so I arranged to show a bunch of them to Weston uh, at my gallery, uh, at Gallery Louis Saudi here. And by chance, uh, uh, there was a collector there. And uh, so he was just sort of eavesdropping and looking in that. And when, when the Getty people left, he said to me, <clears throat> I want to buy all of them. <laughs> He says, because, because I, want, I think they should stay together. He says, I think if the Getty cherry picks for that, that's a disservice to the work. So he bought um, up to that point, and there, there weren't a terrible, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was 25 or something like that, uh, with the, because they were all unique. Uh, but then as people started seeing them in the studios, I, you know, I, I was sort of surprised that people found them of interest. And plus, they got a little more, I thought they got better as I worked, too. And, you know, uh, you tend to have a different attitude towards things if you know you're not the only one interested. <laughs> so um, I started making, uh, some I still make are unique, but in general, I make between two and four copies. Yeah. And this curator at Stanford, he's a book fanatic. Uh, he... Um, I mean, he studied photography uh, before he became a librarian. He studied with Henry Holmes Smith, if you can imagine. And um, so, uh, and he, he teaches a class in, uh, in photographic bookmaking at, to Stanford undergraduates. And so, um, so he's really keen on them. And so now when I make a book, um, I make sure that <clears throat> I set one aside for Stanford. So they won't have everything uh, unless this, unnamed cure, uh, collector decides to give them what he has to Stanford at some point, you know? So, uh, so I mean, that's basically the idea, how, the, how that's working out. And I have a book of the books, so I'm trying to keep track of them as well. And so, uh, because the one thing I don't enjoy is a lot of the labor, you know? So sometimes I, I make the prints for three uh, copies, but I only actually assemble one just because because oh, you know life's short etc <laughs> <laughs> the books are quirky i've maybe seen 20 of them uh -huh. but they're quirky and full of the unexpected and yeah. um, that's and that's that is quite different from your for your <laughs> your practice in series uh -huh. which is more deliberated and takes long time to do, sometimes a huge length of time to do, maybe 10 years, I would guess, in some cases, yeah. such as the railway cuts. So you have to travel to different places and you're taking a long time to set up your, your viewfinder, your, your view camera. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a very different way of working, isn't it? It, it is, and it, it, one of the things it does for me is that it provides an antidote to those decades-long epic projects. Um, 
because some of the books I can, you know, I can do in one day or one weekend or, you know, and uh, so it's nice to, it's rewarding to kind of finish something in a short period of time uh, because a lot of my work is, of course, not finished for a long time, if ever. Um, and uh, in terms of the material, I mean, some of the books are directly related to projects like the one you have Lily's wedding is of course directly related to my nuclear landscape projects and uh, they books like that grew out of the research I was doing to make the you know the, the so-called serious work you know it gets up on a museum wall sometimes um, but a lot of some of the books are um, they're they're either things that I, maybe I'm out like uh, like Saturday I was out we were out and uh, I might have seen something and thought well I'll make a bunch of pictures of this and maybe I can make a little book out of it or something. It could be that simple. Uh, I also, there's a lot of the books have found material, uh, you know, either literally found, uh, like stuff I picked up or things that I buy on eBay or elsewhere and either, you know, and then that stuff is either co collected for a book or it just sort of sits around and you know, it becomes part of this messy archive that I work from. So, or I'm looking for a contact sheet from 99 because I forgot to write the date down on something and I'll see something and say, well, maybe I should, those four of those together could be interesting. So, so it varies and the physical qualities vary too, because they're both, some of them are truly handmade where I fold paper and sew it together. Uh, and others, uh, I uh, alter existing, mostly blank books and so on. And you, um, as with your <clears throat> projects that take longer, Mark, yeah, uh, you often, and I won't say always, because I don't think it is always, include language, include words, includes text, right, intersper interspersed along with the with the photographic material. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Do you think photography? needs text <laughs> well that's a that's a question for a classroom isn't it <laughs> <laughs> oh that's unkind that's unkind <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we both had a whole lifetime of teaching right and this is i mean it's the it's the question i didn't mean to be um okay so <laughs> I, you know, a lot of my, uh, what, what I would think of as my mature work, for lack of a better word, did have captions or titles or other words that were actually part of the work, uh, you know, mostly uh, written on the, on the mounts, because uh, I always mounted the prints. Uh, more recently, that's become less um, useful to my current projects, but I mean, it would be stupid for me to write Los Angeles River underneath a hundred different pictures, you know. Um, but I do like. I mean, one, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm engaged in the uh, history of place names. Uh, that's, you know, that's a part of my interest and a part of the work. Uh, the books allow for a more sort of playful uh, or complicated relationship of word and image. Uh, whether or not photographs need that. I don't, I, that's, it's hard to make a blanket statement on that. Um, I think, uh, back up, uh, I first started, the two, two projects, or two subjects I photographed started at the beginning of the 90s. One was the, uh, the legacy of the first generation of earthwork sculptures. 
and the other was the, the nuclear landscapes. And in both cases, I sort of chose those subjects because I, was I posed this problem to myself of how to photograph stuff that you can't see. And so, the, I mean, the nuclear thing, that's pretty obvious. Uh, but, um, you know, I'd read that, and I was, I've been a big Smithson fan since I was an undergraduate painting student. And um, I'd read that the spiral jetty was underwater, and I thought, aha, that would be interesting to go and photograph it because you can't see it. So there is a bit of, um, there's a bit of an act of faith there in, the, at least in terms of the viewer. Um, so, and now I have, I have barking dogs. I hope they can deal with that. And I, have, I have a braying donkey because I'm on a farm. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I can't. heard it. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have these vendors that go through the neighborhood and uh, they blow uh, these air horns to call tent. You know, they're selling tamales and things like that. So that's, and then the dogs go berserk. So you're, you're on the same, you're in between Susan Sontag to, to stay in the classroom for a moment, who <laughs> okay. said that, that, photographs, um, <clears throat> that photographs are impoverished without text, without language. They, they cannot take their position in the world in a way that's understandable and accessible. Uh -huh. Whereas Judith, and then Judith Butler took her to task on that and said, no, the photographer chooses, a, chooses a, a, a site cut out of the world, frames it, organizes it, and you know, that is the language that the photographer is using. It's the language of imagery, and words aren't needed. Uh -huh. And uh, you, can, you can argue both ways, and I think it depends on context, finally. Myself, yeah, I, and you're right. I'm in between there. Uh, I think I am too. Uh huh. I think yeah. what Butler's point is really interesting, and it sort of suggests a kind of level, of, a more sophisticated level of reading pictures than Sontag's sort of, for lack of a better word, dismissal. <laughs> you know. Um, so, and you know, I think. For me, when I started doing the, the, the text written on the mount of the pictures, uh, the first ones I did as a kind of, it was sort of a test of the idea. I did it in pencil, only because there was nothing else at hand. Um, but I, I, when I saw the results, I, I mean, and, you know, in retrospect, this sounds so patent logical, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that quick, but I thought at a certain distance, you can't see that. So for me, that penciled text, it was sort of analogous to this idea of a of close reading. You know, you get closer to the image to do Judith Butler's style reading of the image, and then you see, oh, there's something else here to reckon with. And, and, I was, and, and this was probably particularly most active in the, in the nuclear landscape work, uh, where the difference between what you saw and its significance in terms of what the text was saying was was the most extreme and and that was a kind of a, a, a formal problem if you will that really interested me back back then uh, i mean I, my work has changed somewhat since those things you know and with the railroad project westward the course of empire uh, i pared it down till to, to just have the, the the original name of the railroad that had been there and but even that is really really t evocative and telling because they're for the most part they're place names and a lot of them are something and something. So there's always already this notion of connecting two places with a line, you know, two points and a line and that. Um, and of course, a lot of those, I mean, uh, there was also this, you know, just the poetry of, of place names, you know. So, um, 
but uh, I don't. I, well, I, I mentioned that thing about how silly it would be to write Los Angeles River under a hundred different pictures, but nonetheless, when those hundred pictures are put together, the word or the name Los Angeles River has to be somewhere. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want people to look at those pictures without knowing it's the Los Angeles River because most people don't even know there. Even the people who live here don't know there's a Los Angeles River. So that's really important to the work. Yeah. Uh, but there's not a lot of uh, other details that I'm giving with with text. You know, so yeah, it's I mean, I'm very interested to hear what you said about the nuclear work. Of course, it is so much of an invisible radiation is invisible. How do you photograph it? So you need other means. But many of your photographs taken in the desert, say, but elsewhere in a, are of abandoned places, of other kinds of invisibility, of the, of the half disappeared, if you like. But not totally invisible, because- Not uh, totally all, Yeah, well, that, and that, for me, that's the interest, is that there is stuff out there that you can, again, uh, I don't know a better word of saying, way of saying that you can read, uh, in the desert, there's evidence and traces of all this uh, human activity that you know in the in the desert goes back thousands and thousands of years. You know, so uh, that, I just find that really interesting. And then the challenge is to also make, of course, a somewhat visually compelling uh, yeah. image. You know, that, uh, that you know, is, I I I, I want to make good looking photographs too. I don't want. I'm not just. That's why I don't. That's why I say I'm not a documentary photographer. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an artist uh, of the documentary persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one tradition you've looked at carefully, but you also looked at conceptualism. You mentioned yeah. Smith and Roucher. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, does and nine have... he does nine swimming pools with an arbitrary number in the front and a broken yeah. glass, and you do nine bomb craters. Right. Yeah, you got that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, see, that's and the, the conceptual artist. I don't think Rouchet is a conceptual artist, although certainly that that history has sort of co-opted his books. You know, I think I think those books are as close to Dada as they are to conceptual art myself. But um, uh, they all that were a lot like hardcore conceptual and relies really heavily on documentation. You know, so you know whether it's Hubler or or, or you know or uh, that's the only one that comes to mind right now. Sorry, uh, but uh, and the thing about Rouchet's books that's so interesting in terms of how I'm thinking about my work in art as an archive is that you know he he had art reasons for making those little books, um, and it, they were sort of anti fine art photography and many other things. But regardless of all that, which is of course both important and interesting in terms of the history of art those books now provide a kind of document of what Los Angeles was all about back then. 50, it's more or less 50 years ago, you know, it's a part, stucco apartments, parking lots, gas stations, you know, uh, uh, vacant lots for sale, you know. Um, so, uh, and I think, I bet he's changed his tune on that, <laughs> being much older and looking back on that. Well, he changed his tune in many ways on that. Yeah, I mean, he changed it a number of years ago when he began to blow some of those up. Well, there's that. I remember thinking yeah. that that was a mistake. Of course, commercially, it was brilliant yes. because they yeah. sold so well. But yeah. I thought that conceptually, um, it, was a, it was the wrong thing to have done. Uh, you know, for a brief period, I, I printed 
uh, uh, color pictures at a, at a lab in, uh, in Vancouver, in Gastown, and I can't remember the name of it now. It was a rental darkroom. Uh, and the, but the people who ran it were printing 40-inch square prints of Richet's uh, parking lots, uh, for probably for Patrick Painter. And, uh, and, uh, and they were having a horrible time because the negatives were awful. <laughs> so, you know, because he didn't care. And, and it's not because he didn't know how to do it. You know, he studied photography, you know. Uh, he had a professional-level camera of sorts. Uh, he just didn't, you know, that wasn't the point of doing that, those pictures, you know. Yeah. So, Ruchet was, was a friend of J.G. Ballard. Did you uh, know yeah. that? I have. Um, Ballard pops which I, which I found fascinating because um, I'm interested in both of them. Um, uh, and but Simon Baker. In, yeah in a fabulous article that includes some of your photographs, including the swimming, empty swimming pool, crack oh, yeah. swimming pool in the desert, makes the comment that, and he's thinking of the swimming pool in the drowned world, but of course it comes up in Ballard's work time and time again, drowned world from 1962. Mm -hmm. uh, but he brought you in and found connections. But, so there's a connection between you, Rouget, and Ballard. How does that sit? Well, one of the little books I want to, I'm doing <laughs> is uh, I've been I've been rifling my my collection of Ballard novels and short stories to find really good quotations about swimming pools to put with five or six <laughs> abandoned swimming pools that I photographed in the desert. So <laughs> it's really apropos. Uh, when Simon was doing that article, he asked me both for some specific types of pictures which he had seen on his studio visit here. Uh, but also, do you have any abandoned swimming pools or things like that? And of course, you know, I do. <laughs> so, because they show up in some of these places. The one that he published uh, was actually uh, an abandoned resort on the shores of the, of the Great Salt Lake uh, that dated back to a time when the lake was cleaner, less saltier, and a lot deeper. <laughs> so, uh, it was left high and dry. Uh, I don't remember when I started reading Ballard. I mean, I, I read science fiction when I was starting when I was a teenager, and I'm not a big fan. I, there's only a few, I mean, as, as an adult, there's a lot of that stuff that you just, you know, the writing is so awful, but Ballard, Philip Dick is an uneven writer, but his ideas are so great. Uh, a few mm -hmm. others that I really, you know, that I can still read, Octavio Butler. Um, but Ballard is just the most visual of all of them. You know, and, and and he also, of course, has a relationship to uh, visual art history as well, in particular with the independent group in, uh, in the UK and all that. So that, um, all I can say about, I, I mean, I don't think I was consciously thinking about Ballard, but it was, it's all part of this thing I have a, that I carry into the desert, you know. Uh, when I was a teenager, I would make these kind of science fiction type landscapes and drawings and paintings and that and they were a lot of them were based on the land the backgrounds anyway were all based on uh photographs i had seen of the south dakota badlands so this this is a problem that goes way back in my <laughs> so, uh, uh, i haven't thought about that stuff in a really long time so you're you're drawing me out here um, well i but i found it so interesting that Rouge and ballard should have found common ground it didn't surprise me once i heard about it uh -huh. but uh -huh. um I have to say, it pleased me enormously. I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall when those two were talking. 
<laughs> well, you know, an artist, a, a more contemporary artist that I that I really interested in her work, Tacita Dean, has done stuff with Ballard, uh, with his his legacy. And, uh, she even did something with the camera that he left behind uh, after really? he passed away. Yeah. So, um, mm. so that's a. Anyway, it's just you know Ballard. I think is uh, a writer that uh, appeals to a lot of visual artists. You know? Uh, so, so maybe I'll do the illustrated Ballard someday, you know? <laughs> well, if you do the illustrated Ballard, <clears throat> I'm giving away something I shouldn't, but I'm thinking about Ballard for a book. Oh, well. <laughs> you, you know that he was in Moose, in Moose Jaw in the winter of 1954-55, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan? Only you would know that, John. Are you? <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> How would you know that stuff? Well, I would know it because he wanted to become a nuclear bomber pilot. And oh, he had, he'd tried psychiatry at Cambridge and dropped out. He'd, um, uh -huh. he'd worked in Covent Garden in the flower market uh, in the chrysanthemum division. He'd sold encyclopedias door to door in the Midlands uh, quite successfully. And at the same time, he was trying to write, but he, couldn't, he hadn't found a voice and he hadn't found a subject. So he signed up because he was he was um, obsessed and fixated with the possibility of nuclear conflict. Signed up to and with the RAF, and the RAF sent him to learn how to fly for flight training in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And I think and and in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, he discovered science fiction and many uh, other things that are quite interesting with regard to wow. what happens later. Without a one to one, it actually is a pivotal moment in his life. And I think a book should be written on it. I, and I think you're the one to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you can illustrate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I already have the pictures. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to go to Moose Jog. I haven't been there in a long time. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm thinking of your, uh, you know, the, the Kubrick pictures of the pie fight and for Dr. Strange. I was like, like oh, I was who else but you would 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 find that and, and do something with it? It's terrific, you know. Well, you might monitor small books. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> anyway, um, so um, we're we're coming close to the end, I oh, think. But we've got we've got another ten minutes. Is okay. that good for you? Oh yeah, I'm if fine. We, I'm if fine. we've got anything to say. Um, <laughs> um, well, this could be. Uh, they can insert a commercial here for a minute. They, they can. Yeah. No, I'm. Um, one thing we haven't talked about, although we've skirted around it, is your interest in repetition as a strategy. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And as it relates to narrative and memory, mm -hmm. um, take the desert. You say that, of course, there's been humans, human signs there for thousands of years. There's also been geologic change there. Yes, yes. And those yes. kinds of repetitions, I think, fascinate you. Um, yeah. Um, well, the, yeah. The, in terms of the Great Basin Desert, in particular, uh, the signs of geological change are roughly the same time period as the entrance of human societies. You know, because uh, uh, the the late Pleistocene, the, the Intermountain West uh, uh, here was characterized by deep freshwater lakes, which uh, or or there are there sort of drying up remnants, which would have uh, supported hunter-gatherer societies which moved down into the Great Basin depending
depends who you read, 12 to 17,000 years before the present. And uh, because the, uh, a lot of the, still a lot of the desert is so uh, arid and barren, uh, nobody's found a really good commercial use for it in re recent times. So that stuff is still there. It hasn't been disturbed, you know? Uh, and that's just amazing to me that you can see, uh, you can see a footpath of that, you know, could be 5,000 years old. It leads to a, a cave where there's documented evidence of human habitation that goes back to five, seven. There's a cave in Eastern Oregon that they found uh, sagebrush uh, woven uh, sandals that were about 12,000 years old, you know, uh, carbon dated. And so, you know, but at the same time, you know, there's a bomb craters from uh, World War II uh, training and all that stuff is there sort of in layers because they're coexisting and uh, that's that's really really interesting and and I think you know the desert appeals to me for other reasons but that's that's what feeds the work is that uh, you know um, they don't clean up the desert very much you know <laughs> that stuff's just sitting there you know uh, I mean it might be disturbed but it's never swept away uh, so that's, I mean, that's just really interesting. Uh, you know, the, well, there's no trees to kind of, or, you know, grass to cover up the evidence, you know? Uh, and also I think the kind of minimalist landscape is just, you know, that's a deep seated, uh, yeah, aesthetic yeah. that I have, you know, that, you know, goes back to studying art in the seventies, but, uh, the repetition thing that, that varies. Yeah, I, I tend to, to, you know, like the, the railroad picture is the prime example of that. I photographed, I think, 140 different railroads in, over the course of a dozen years, uh, always making more or less the same two or three pictures, you know. Uh, the idea there was, at least in part, was that if one railroad cut would be a unique phenomenon, it's either interesting or it's not visually, but hundreds of them starts to say something about the history of the subject, you know, the, the kind of relentless enterprise, if you will, uh, of uh, that particular uh, uh, industry. And, and um, you know, the, this relentless push of, you know, in quotation marks, conquering the continent, you know, from east to west and that. So I thought that that was one thing that I, I was pretty sure of fairly early on when I defined that that subject was to get as many as possible, not just as many places, but as many different names. You know, it was equally important for me to get a different railroad as it was to get a different picture. You know, and I, you know, I confess I have a I have the neuroses of the collector too. You know, so. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I could never get this quote or this exactly right, but a long time ago, Louis Baltz said something that, uh, comparing that way of working uh, to the idea of, uh, of an experiment in a, in a laboratory, that it's, it's only valid if you can repeat the results, you know? So, uh -huh. so well, that, Adams would be the same way, so yeah. Robert Adams. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with whom you worked for a while, didn't you? I didn't really, no, no, we just no, were you didn't. friends. No, no, no. I, he was going to have me print for him at once upon a time. And then he, he sort he got cold feet on the idea. He said, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be yelling at a friend, <laughs> basically. So, so, okay, you know, I'm all right with that. So, um, so the, yeah, that, that repetition, I think that's really what that's about. Uh, and, and of course the collecting, the surrounding an idea with a certain number of images, I think give, gives the, 
the idea of even choosing that as a subject, some sort of validity. Uh, so, that um, comes back to, to the Stanford donation in our archive. Yeah. You want to hold on to certain things because you may be doing more with the projects. You may be doing another railway cut. Um, yeah. And it also relates to the collecting, doesn't it? So, yeah. I mean, that brings it's us full circle. <laughs> it's hard to stop. <laughs> uh, I, I, I pretty much stopped. Uh, when I, I've published a, a, a pretty major monograph on the railroad project and, and more recently a, a, a large book on the desert, the abandoned houses in the desert. Uh, West, well, no, I was going to say, uh, it's called Message from the Exterior, which is a little pun on Walker Evans's last book. But uh, I've pretty much found that making those, publishing those books have, has been a way to kind of stop, you know. But now, of course, I passed the abandoned house and I kind of, <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe one more, you know. <laughs> so my, the other thing is because I, I, I tend to go to the same places over and over and over again that I'm really interested in how it changed from my last visit, you know. So sometimes I do make another picture just to have that kind of, it's not a before and after, it's sort of like an after and after, after and more after, you know. And, and I'm, I just find that interesting. I don't think it's a, you know, this big sophisticated idea I'm working on. I just like to do that. So, uh, but I, you know, if, if, if I had more time and energy, I'd probably still be doing those railroad pictures too. But, you know, cause I missed that activity, you know, it was really, really fun to do that. Um, but my new, my new work is time consuming. Your work is always fascinating, peculiar, obsessed, obsessive, or dealing with obsessions in the desert. And it, um, it is a really great pleasure to have talked to you about it, Mark. Um, I really do appreciate it. Oh, no, it's, pleasure's all mine, John. I always like talking to you. <laughs> right. So I guess we're saying goodbye. We're saying goodbye <laughs> and be well. Oh, you okay, and I'll I'll see you when this is all over, okay? <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Polygon Podcast. Visit thepolygon.ca to learn more about this episode. This podcast is produced by the Polygon Gallery in North Vancouver, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting our work by making a donation. Visit thepolygon.ca slash donate to find out more.